12, H. On taking possession of the fort, found that the garrison had originally consisted of 33 men, of whom two only were wounded, though mortally, the walls were of great thickness, and bombproof, and the parapet consisted of an interior lining of rush matting, filled up to the exterior of the parapet with sand, the only guns they had were two 18-pounders, the towers erected between East Werder Bay and Dimchurch upwards of 20 were built of brick, and were from about 35 feet to 40 feet high, the entrance to them was by a low doorway, about 7 feet and a half from the ground, and admission was gained by means of a ladder, which was afterwards withdrawn into the interior. A high step of two feet led to the first floor of the tower, a room of about 13 feet diameter, and with the walls about five feet thick. Round this room were loopholes in the walls, at such an elevation, that the men would be obliged to stand on benches in the event of their being required to oppose an attack of musketry. Those benches were also used as the sleeping places of the garrison. On this floor there was a fireplace and from the center was a trap door leading downwards to the ammunition and provision rooms. The second floor was ascended by similar means. Turkish customs, characteristically indolent. The fondness for a sedentary life is stronger, perhaps, with the Turks, than with any other people of whom we read. It is difficult to describe the gravity and apathy which constitute the distinguishing features of their character. Everything in their manners tends to foster in them, especially in the higher classes an almost invincible love of ease and luxurious leisure. The general rule which they seem to lay down for their guidance, is that taking the trouble to do anything themselves which they can possibly get others to do for them, and the precision with which they observe it in some of the minutest trifles of domestic life is almost amusing. A Turkish gentleman, who has once composed his body upon the corner of a sofa, appears to attach a certain notion of grandeur to the keeping of it there and it is only something of the gravest importance that induces him to disturb his position. If he wishes to procure anything that is within a few steps of him, he summons his slaves by clapping his hands the eastern mode of ringing the bell, and bids them bring it to him. His feelings of dignity would be hurt by getting up to reach it himself. Of course, this habit of inaction prevails equally with the female sex. A Turkish lady would not think of picking up a fallen handkerchief so long as she had an attendant to do it for her. As may be supposed, the number of slaves in a Turkish household of any importance is very great. The position of women in eastern countries is so totally unlike that which they hold in our own happy land, that we must refer expressly to it, in order that the picture of domestic life presented to us in the writings of all travelers in the east may be understood. Amongst all ranks, the wife is not the friend and companion, but the slave of her husband and even when treated with kindness and affection, her state is still far below that of her sisters in Christian lands, even in the humblest rank of life. The meal which the wife prepares with her own hands for her husband, she must not partake of with him. The hard-working eastern peasant, and the fine lady who spends most of her time in eating sweetmeats, or in embroidery, are both alike dark and ignorant, for it would be accounted a folly, if not a sin, to teach them even to read. Numerous carriers, or sellers of water, obtain their living in the east by supplying the inhabitants with it. They are permitted to fill their water bags, made of goat skins, at the public fountains. This goat skin of the carrier has a long brass spout, and from this the water is poured into a brass cup. For anyone who wishes to drink, many of these are employed by the charitable, to distribute water in the streets, and they pray be thirsty to partake of the bounty offered to them in the name of God. 
praying that paradise and pardon may be the lot of him who affords the refreshing gift. Illustrated, Turkish water carrier the dancing dervises are a religious order of Mohammedans, who affect a great deal of patience, humility, and charity. Part of their religious observance consists in dancing or whirling their bodies round with the greatest rapidity imaginable, to the sound of a flute, and long practice has enabled them to do this without suffering the least inconvenience from the strange movement. In eastern countries, the bread is generally made in the form of a large thin cake, which is torn and folded up, almost like a sheet of paper, it can then be used as knives and forks are not employed by the orientals for the purpose of rolling together a mouthful of meat or supping up gravy and vegetables, at the meals, on study, study serve for delight, for ornament, and for ability, the chief use for delight is in privateness and retiring, for ornament, is in discourse, and for ability, is in the judgment and disposition of business, for expert men can execute, and perhaps judge of particulars one by one, but the general counsels, and the plots, and marshalling of affairs, come best from those that are learned, to spend too much time in studies, is sloth, to use them too much for ornament, is affectation, to make judgment wholly by their rules, is the humor of a scholar, they perfect nature, and are perfected by experience, for natural abilities are like natural plants, that need pruning by duty, and studies themselves to give forth directions too much at large, except they be bounded in by experience, crafty men contemn studies, simple men admire them, and wise men use them, for they teach not their own use, but that is a wisdom without them, and above them, one by observation, read not to contradict and confute, nor to believe and take for granted, not to find talk and discourse, but to weigh and consider, some books are to be tasted, others to be swallowed, and some few to be chewed and digested, that island some books are to be read only in parts, others to be read, but not curiously, and some few to be read wholly, and with diligence and attention, Some books also may be read by deputy, and extracts made of them by others, but that should be only in the less important arguments, and the meaner sorts of books, else distilled books are like common distilled waters, flashy things, reading make the full man, conference a ready man, and writing an exact man, and, therefore, if a man write little, he had need have a great memory, if he confer little, he had need have a present wit, and if he read little, he had need have much cunning to seem to know that he doth not, Bacon, the shores of Greece, he who hath bent him o'er the dead ere the first day of death is fled, the first dark day of nothingness, the last of danger and distress, before decay's effacing fingers, have swept the lines where beauty lingers, and marked the mild, angelic air, the rapture of repose that's there, the fixed, yet tender traits that streak the languor of the placid cheek, and, but for that sad shrouded eye, that fires not winds not weeps not now, and, but for that chill, changeless brow, whose touch thrills with mortality, and curdles to the gazer's heart, as if to him it could impart the doom he dreads, yet dwells upon, yes, but for these, and these alone some moments I, one treacherous hour he still might doubt the tyrant's power, so fair, so calm, so softly sealed, the first, last look by death revealed, such is the aspect of this shore, tis Greece, but living Greece no more, so coldly sweet so deadly fair we start, for soul is wanting there, hers is the loveliness in death that parts not quite with parting breath, but beauty, with that fearful bloom, that hue which haunts it to the tomb, expression's last receding ray, a gilded halo hovering round decay, 
the farewell beam of feeling passed away, spark of that flame perchance of heavenly birth, which gleams, but warms no more its cherished earth. Myron, the fort of ADDOCK. Adik is a fort and small town in the Punjab, on the left or east bank of the Indus, 942 miles from the sea, and close below the place where it receives the water of the Kabul River, and first becomes navigable. The name, signifying obstacle, is supposed to have been given to it under the presumption that no scrupulous Hindu would proceed westward of it, but this strict principle, like many others of similar nature, is little acted on. Some state that the name was given by the Emperor Akbar, because he here found much difficulty in crossing the river. The river itself is at this place frequently by the natives called Adik. Here is a bridge, formed usually of from 20 to 30 boats, across the stream, at a spot where it is 537 feet wide. In summer, when the melting of the snows in the lofty mountains to the north raises the stream so that the bridge becomes endangered, it is withdrawn and the communication is then effected by means of a ferry. The banks of the river are very high, so that the enormous accession which the volume of water receives during inundation scarcely affects the breadth, but nearly increases the depth. The rock forming the banks is of a dark-colored slate, polished by the force of the stream, so as to shine like black marble. Between these, one clear blue stream shot past. The depth of the Indus here is 30 feet in the lowest state and between 60 and 70 in the highest, and runs at the rate of 6 miles an hour. There is a fort at some distance above the confluence of the river of Kabul, but the extreme coldness and rapidity of the water render it at all times very dangerous, and on the slightest inundation quite impracticable. The bridge is supported by an association of boatmen, who receive the revenue of a village allotted for this purpose by the Emperor Akbar, and a small daily pay as long as the bridge stands and also levy a toll on all passengers. On the right bank, opposite Adik, is Kairabad a fort built, according to some, by the Emperor Akbar, according to others by Nader Shah. This locality island in a military and commercial point of view, of much importance, as the Indus is here crossed by the great route which, proceeding from Kabul eastward through the Khyber Pass into the Punjab, forms the main line of communication between Afghanistan and northern India. The river was here repeatedly crossed by the British armies, during the late military operations in Afghanistan, and here, according to the general opinion, Alexander, subsequently to Moore, the Tartar conqueror, and, still later, Nader Shah, crossed, but there is much uncertainty on these points. The fortress was erected by the Emperor Akbar, in 1581 to command the passage, but, though strongly built of stone on the high and steep bank of the river, it could offer no effectual resistance to a regular attack, being commanded by the neighboring heights. Its form is that of a parallelogram, it is 800 yards long and 400 wide. The population of the town, which is enclosed within the walls of the fort, is estimated at 2,000. The order of nature, see through this air, this ocean, and this earth, all matter quick, and bursting into birth, above, how high progressive life may go, around, how wide. How deep extend below, vast chain of being, which from God began, nature's ethereal, human, angel, man, beast, bird, fish, insect, what no eye can see no glass can reach, from infinity to be from thee to nothing, on superior powers were we to press, inferior might on ours, or in the full creation leave a void, where one step broken the great scales destroyed from nature's chain whatever link you strike. 
tenth or ten thousandth, breaks the chain alike, and, if each system in gradation roll alike essential to th amazing whole, the least confusion but in one, not all that system only, but the whole must fall, let earth and balance from her orbit fly, planets and suns run lawless through the sky, let ruling angels from their spheres be hurled, being on being wrecked, and whirled on whirled, have single quote and single quote as whole foundations to the center nod, and nature trembles to the throne of God, all this dread order break for whom, for thee, vile word or, oh, madness, pride, impiety, what if the foot, ordained the dust to tread, or hand to toil, aspired to be the head, what if the head, the eye, or ear, repine to serve mere engines to the ruling mind, just as absurd for any part to claim to be another, in this general frame, just as absurd to mourn the tasks or pains, the great directing mind of all ordains, all are but parts of one stupendous whole whose body nature island and God the soul, that changed through all, and yet in all the same, great is in earth as in the ethereal frame, warms in the sunday refreshes in the breeze, glows in the stars, and blossoms in the trees, lives through all life, extends through all extent, spreads and divided, operates and spent, breathes in our soul, informs our mortal part, as full, as perfect, in a hair as heart, as full, as perfect, in vile man that mourns, as the rapt seraph that adores and burns, to him no high, no low, no great, no small, he fills, he bounds, connects, and equals all, cease then, nor order imperfection name, our proper bliss depends on what we blame. Know my own point, this kind, this due degree of blindness, weakness, heathen bestows on thee. Submit in this, or any other sphere, secure to be as blessed as thou canst bear, safe in the hand of one disposing power or in the natal, or the mortal hour. All nature is but art, and known to thee, all chance, direction which thou canst not see, all discord, harmony not understood, all partial evil, universal good and, spite of pride, in erring reason's spite, one truth is clear, whatever island is right, Pope, Lord Clarendon, this celebrated statesman, who flourished in the reigns of Charles I and I, I, took a prominent part in the eventful times in which he lived, he was not of noble birth, but the descendant of a family called Hyde, which resided from a remote period at Norbury, in Cheshire, he was originally intended for the church, but eventually became a lawyer, applying himself to the study of his profession with a diligence far surpassing that of the associates with whom he lived. In 1635, he attracted the notice of Archbishop Laud, which may be regarded as the most fortunate circumstance of his life, as it led to his introduction to Charles I in consequence of the ability displayed by him in the responsible duties he was called to perform. That monarch offered him the office of Solicitor General, but this Hyde declined, preferring, as he said, to serve the king in an official capacity. After the Battle of Naseby, Hyde was appointed one of the council formed to attend, watch over, and direct the Prince of Wales. After hopelessly witnessing for many months a course of disastrous and ill-conducted warfare in the west, the council fled with the prince, first to the Scilly Islands, near Cornwall, and thence to Jersey. From this place, against the wishes of Hyde, the prince, in 1640, repaired to his mother, Henrietta, at Paris, leaving Hyde at Jersey, where he remained for two years, engaged in the composition of his celebrated History of the Rebellion, in May, 1648, 
Hyde was summoned to attend the prince at The Hague, and here they received the news of the death of Charles I which is said to have greatly appalled them. After faithfully following the new king in all his vicissitudes of fortune, suffering at times extreme poverty, he attained at the restoration the period of his greatest power. In 1660, his daughter Anne was secretly married to the Duke of York, but when, after a year, it was openly acknowledged, the new Lord Chancellor received the news with violent demonstrations of indignation and grief. Hyde, in fact, never showed any identity for emoluments or distinction, but when this marriage was declared, it became desirable that some mark of the King's favour should be shown, and he was created Earl of Clarendon. He subsequently, from political broils, was compelled to exile himself from the court, and took up his residence at Montpelier, where, resuming his literary labours, he completed his celebrated history, and the memoir of his life, after fruitlessly petitioning King Charles I, for permission to end his days in England, the illustrious exile died at Rouen, in 1674, in the 65th year of his age, Owls, it is now generally known that the owl renders the farmer important service, by ridding him of vermin, which might otherwise consume the produce of his field, but in almost every age and country it has been regarded as a bird of ill omen, and sometimes even as the herald of death. In France, the cry or hoot is considered as a certain foreigner of misfortune to the hearer. In Tartary, the owl is looked upon in another light, though not valued as it ought to be for its useful destruction of moles, rats, and mice. The natives pay it great respect, because they attribute to this bird the preservation of the founder of their empire, Genghis Khan. That prince, with his army, happened to be surprised and put to flight by his enemies, and was forced to conceal himself in a little coppice, and now settled on the bush under which he was hid, and his pursuers did not search there, as they thought it impossible the bird would perch on a place where any man was concealed, thenceforth his countrymen held the owl to be a sacred bird, and everyone wore a plume of its feathers on his head, one of the smallest of the owl tribe utters but one melancholy note now and then. The Indians in North America whistle whenever they chance to hear the solitary note, and if the bird does not very soon repeat his harmless cry, the speedy death of the superstitious hearer is foreboded. It is hence called the death bird. The voices of all carnivorous birds and beasts are harsh, and at times hideous, and probably, like that of the owl, which, from the width and capacity of its throat, is in some varieties very powerful may be intended as an alarm and warning to the birds and animals on which they prey, to secure themselves from the approach of their stealthy foe. Owls are divided into two groups or families one having two tufts of feathers on the head, which have been called ears or horns, and are movable at pleasure, the others having smooth round heads without tufts. The bills are hooked in both. There are upwards of sixty species of owls widely spread over almost every part of the known world, of these we may count not fewer than eight as more or less frequenting this country. One of the largest of the tribe is the eagle hawk, or great horned owl, the great thickness of whose plumage makes it appear nearly as large as the eagle. Some fine preserved specimens of this noble-looking bird may be seen in the British Museum. It is a most powerful bird, and a specimen was captured, with great difficulty, in 1837, when it alighted upon the masthead of a vessel off Flamborough Head. The amiable naturalist, Mr. Waterton, who took a special interest in the habits of the owl, writes thus on the barn owl, This pretty aerial wanderer of the night often comes into my room, and, after flitting to and fro, 
on wings so soft and silent that he is scarcely heard, takes his departure from the same window at which he had entered. I own I have a great liking for the bird, and I have offered it hospitality and protection on account of its persecutions, and for its many services to me, I wish that any little thing I could write or say might cause it to stand better with the world than it has hitherto done. Chatterton, this gifted young poet was the son of a schoolmaster at Bristol, where he was born, in 1752, on the 24th of August, 1770, he was found dead near a table covered with the scraps of writings he had destroyed, in a miserable room in Brook Street, Holborn, in Redcliffe Churchyard, Bristol. A beautiful monument has been erected to the memory of the unfortunate poet, O oh God, whose thunders shake the sky, whose ibis atom globe surveys, to thee, my only rock, I fly by mercy in thy justice praise, Oh, teach me in the trying hour, when anguish swells the dewy tear, to still my sorrows, O oh, thy power, Thy goodness love, thy justice fear, God, why, my soul, dost thou complain, why, drooping, seek the dark recess, shake off the melancholy chain, for God created all to bless, but, God, my breast is human still, the rising sigh, the falling tear, my languid vitals feeble rill, the sickness of my soul declare, Chatterton, Smyrna, this city and seaport of Malia, in Asia is situate towards the northern part of a peninsula, upon a long and winding gulf of the same name, which is capable of containing the largest navy in the world. The city is about four miles round, presenting a front of a mile long to the water, and when approached by sea, it resembles a capacious amphitheater with the ruins of an ancient castle crowning its summit. The interior of the city, however, disappoints the expectations thus raised, for the streets are narrow, dirty, and ill-paved and there is now scarcely a trace of those once splendid edifices which rendered Smyrna one of the finest cities in Asia Minor. The shops are arched over, and have a handsome appearance, in spite of the gloom which the houses wear. Those along the shore have beautiful gardens attached to them, at the foot of which are summer houses overhanging the sea. The city is subject to earthquakes and the plague, which latter, in 1814, carried off above 50.000 of the inhabitants. About midnight, in July, 1841, a fire broke out at Smyrna, which, from the crowded state of the wooden houses, the want of water, and the violence of the wind, was terribly destructive. About 12.000 houses were destroyed, including two-thirds of the Turkish quarter, most of the French and the whole of the Jewish quarters, with many bazaars and several mosques, synagogues, and other public buildings. It was calculated that 20.000 persons were deprived of shelter and food, and the damage was estimated at 2 million sterling. The fine port of Smyrna is frequented by ships from all nations, freighted with valuable cargoes, both outward and inward. The greater part of the trading transactions is managed by Jews, who act as brokers, the principals needing afterwards to conclude the bargains. In 1402 Smyrna was taken by Tamerlane and suffered very severely. The conqueror erected within its walls a tower constructed of stones and the heads of his enemies. Soon after, it came under the dominion of the Turks, and has been subsequently the most flourishing city in the Levant, exporting and importing valuable commodities to and from all parts of the world. Gentleness. I begin with distinguishing true gentleness from passive tameness of spirit, and from unlimited compliance with the manners of others. That passive tameness which submits without opposition, 
to every encroachment of the violent and assuming, forms no part of Christian duty, but, on the contrary, is destructive of general happiness and order, that unlimited complaisance, which on every occasion falls in with the opinions and manners of others, is so far from being a virtue, that it is itself a vice, and the parent of many vices, it overthrows all steadiness of principle, and produces that sinful conformity with the world which taints the whole character. In the present corrupted state of human manners, always to assent and to comply is the very worst maxim we can adopt. It is impossible to support the purity and dignity of Christian morals without opposing the world on various occasions, even though we should stand alone. That gentleness, therefore, which belongs to virtue, is to be carefully distinguished from the mean spirit of cowards, and the fawning assent of sycophants. It renounces no just right from fear. It gives up no important truth from flattery. It is indeed not only consistent with a firm mind, but it necessarily requires a manly spirit, and a fixed principle, in order to give it any real value. Upon this solid ground only, the polish of gentleness can with advantage be superinduct. It stands opposed, not to the most determined regard for virtue and truth, but to harshness and severity, to pride and arrogance, to violence and oppression. It is properly that part of the great virtue of charity, which makes us unwilling to give pain to any of our brethren. Compassion prompts us to relieve their wants. Forbearance prevents us from retaliating their injuries. Meekness restrains our angry passions. Candor, our severe judgments. Gentleness corrects whatever is offensive in our manners. And, by a constant train of humane attentions, studies to alleviate the burden of common misery. Its office, therefore, is extensive. It is not, like some other virtues, called forth only on peculiar emergencies, but it is continually in action. When we are engaged in intercourse with men, it ought to form our address, to regulate our speech, and to diffuse itself over our whole behavior. We must not, however, confound this gentle wisdom which is from above with that artificial courtesy, that studied smoothness of manners, which is learned in the school of the world. Such accomplishments the most frivolous and empty may possess. Too often they are employed by the artful as a snare, too often affected by the heart and in feeling as a cover to the baseness of their minds. We cannot, at the same time, avoid observing the homage, which, even in such instances, the world is constrained to pay to virtue, in order to render society agreeable. It is found necessary to assume somewhat that may at least carry its appearance. Virtue is the universal charm. Even its shadow is courted. When the substance is wanting, the imitation of its form has been reduced into an art, and in the commerce of life, the first study of all who would either gain the esteem or win the hearts of others, is to learn the speech and to adopt the manners of candor, gentleness, and humanity. But that gentleness which is the characteristic of a good man has, like every other virtue, its seat in the heart, and let me add, Nothing except what flows from the heart can render even external manners truly pleasing, for no assumed behavior can at all times hide the real character. In that unaffected civility which springs from a gentle mind there is a charm infinitely more powerful than in all the studied manners of the most finished courtier. True gentleness is founded on a sense of what we owe to him who made us, and to the common nature of which we all share. It arises from reflections on our own failings and wants and from just views of the condition and the duty of man, it is native feeling heightened and improved by principle, it is the heart which easily relents, which feels for everything that is human, and is backward and slow to inflict the least wound, it is affable in its address, 
and mild in its demeanor, ever ready to oblige, and willing to be obliged by others, breathing habitual kindness towards friends, courtesy to strangers, long-suffering to enemies, it exercises authority with moderation, administers reproof with tenderness, confers favors with ease and modesty, it is an assuming in opinion, and temperate in zeal, it contends not eagerly about trifles, slow to contradict, and still slower to blame, but prompt to allay dissension and to restore peace, it neither intermeddles unnecessarily with the affairs, nor pries inquisitively into the secrets of others, it delights above all things to alleviate distress, and if it cannot dry up the falling tear, to soothe at least, the grieving heart, where it has not the power of being useful, it is never burdensome, it seeks to please rather than to shine and dazzle, and conceals with care that superiority, either of talent or of rank, which is oppressive to those who are beneath it, in a word, it is that spirit and that tenor of manners which the gospel of Christ enjoins, when it commands us, to bear one another's burdens, to rejoice with those who rejoice, and to weep with those who weep, to please everyone his neighbor for his good, to be kind and tender-hearted, to be pitiful and courteous, to support the weak, and to be patient towards all men. Blair, the iguana, the iguana cycloricolii is not only of singular aspect, but it may be regarded as the type of a large and important group in the Saurian family, which formed so conspicuous a feature in the ancient fauna of this country. The iguana attains a large size in Jamaica, whence the present specimen was obtained, not infrequently approaching four feet in length. In color it is a greenish-gray. It is entirely herbivorous, as are all its congeners. Its principal haunt in Jamaica is the low limestone chain of hills, along the shore from Kingston Harbor and Go Island, onto its continuation in Beer. The iguanas which are occasionally taken in the savannas adjacent to this district are considered by Mr. Hill an energetic correspondent of the Zoological Society who resides in Spanish Town and who has paid great attention to the natural history of the island to be only stray visitants which have wandered from the hills. The allied species of cyclura, which are found on the American continent, occur in situations of a very different character, for they affect forests on the bank of rivers, and woods around springs, where they pass their time in trees and in the water, living on fruits and leaves. This habit is preserved by the specimen in the Zoological Society's gardens which we have seen lying lazily along an elevated branch. Its serrated tail is a formidable weapon of defense, with which, when alarmed or attacked, it deals rapid blows from side to side. When unmolested it is harmless and inoffensive, and appears to live in perfect harmony with the smaller species of lizards which, 